0: Good evening, and welcome to the London School of Economics. It's wonderful to see so many of you here tonight for Art and Culture's inaugural lecture. I'm Josephine Breeze, co-director of Breeze Little Gallery with Henry Little. Art and Culture is a non-profit educational organization which offers a biannual art criticism prize and biannual lectures in association with LSE Arts. Art and Culture encompasses Breeze Little's former education program. It is my great pleasure to announce this evening's speakers, Justine Simons, James Lingwood, and Alex Sainsbury. Between them, they share a great deal of experience of the changing landscape of philanthropy in this country, as well as shaping its future in the visual arts. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks also go to the Singer Zaharia family, generous supporters of Art and Culture's lecture series at LSE, without whom this program would not be possible. Thank you, Catherine. Without further delay, I'm delighted to hand over to Justine to introduce this evening's discussion. Thank you. Thanks very
1: much. Can you, is that all right? Can you hear me? Cool. Um, there's some housekeeping. Um, the Twitter handle is hashtag LSEArts. Um, you've got to put your phones on silent, and it's going to be recorded. They're the three things. And um, there'll be a Q&A after we've had a bit of a chat on the panel, if that sounds Okay. Um, so, I've been asked to open, before handing over to my panellists, um, with a bit of perspective from my job, which is to be the Head of Culture at City Hall. Um, and I wanted to just start by telling you the story of um, the artist Hans Hacker. I don't know if you, uh, do you know, you know his work? He's, he's on, his work is on the fourth plinth at the moment in Trafalgar Square. Has everyone seen it? The big, gorgeous bronze horse with the ticker tape on it. <laughs> um, so it's called Gift Horse and uh, it's all about money and power and uh, he's interested in systems and he's interested in capitalism as a system and s- processes that happen in cities. Um, and in particular, he, uh, some of his work has looked at revealing the relationships between, for example, galleries and corporate sponsors. Um, and in 1971, he had a show at the Guggenheim. Um, which was uh, called a real-time study, social system. And it was looking at the slum developments that were happening at the time in New York in the early 70s and the role of the developers uh, and the clearance companies that were coming through. And it was quite a meticulous study that he was doing, which was the basis for his show at the Guggenheim. Anyway, it became quite difficult and controversial for the gallery, um, because not that he the, the developer didn't directly sponsor the gallery, but there were seemed to be connections between various trustees and people involved. Um, and so, I, as I understand it from him, he was asked to make changes with, within his show, and he said, you know, I'm not prepared to do that because it's my work and, you know, it would undermine the integrity of the work. Um, and the curator of the Guggenheim really stuck behind him and said, you know, absolutely not, you know, you have to maintain the kind of principle and the integrity of the work. Um, and um, the show was cancelled, the curator was sacked, and Han didn't have a show for the next 15 years in New York, um, which I think shows us that this relationship between art and corporations and funding and philanthropy is a really, really complex one. Um, and I think there was lots of resolution recently when he put his piece onto the fourth plinth, you know, that there he was, this piece looking at capitalist systems in the heart of London. Uh, So it's a complex and interesting space I think we're in. Um, And it's at the top of our minds in London today with so much pressure on uh, culture and on creativity. Um, you know We're known as a world-class cultural capital. We've got this great reputation. Um, The Tate Gallery is the most visited contemporary art gallery on planet Earth. Um, The creative sector generated $35 for London last year. Um, Whenever we poll people about why they come here, all the visitors and people who come to live here, it's always 8 out of 10 people saying that culture and heritage is the reason they come. So it's a really important part of London, London's success, London's health, London's vibrancy. Um, The British Museum has more visitors than Belgium, I learned. Um, so, on one level, you could go, it's all fantastic and hunky-dory and, uh, you know, why are we worrying about this? Um, but we are worrying because culture isn't a statutory thing. So, when the pressure is on public funders, you know, it's, it's often the thing that is at the bottom of the list. Only about one or two percent of the national government's budget goes to culture. Um, and, um, you know, if you look at how London is growing and what that means for culture... Um, you, we all know how expensive it is to live here. And um, you know, if you look at the impact of that on our you know, cultural world, we've been tracking this. And uh, we will, we're scheduled to lose about 30% of artist studio space in London in the next five years. So we're looking at a kind of crisis in artist studios. Um, the average salary of an artist is 10,000. The average value of a property in London is 500,000. So it doesn't take a genius to work out, it's 50 times the average salary of an artist to get a a property. Um, We recently did a study that we launched last week looking at music venues, live music venues also. We've lost 35% of live music venues in the last uh, eight years. So I think we're in this kind of interesting position in London where we've got incredible success and vibrancy, (coughs) um, uh, but also as London grows and changes, these pressures do bear down on our cultural world um, and they are quite keenly felt by artists um, and it's a serious issue for us um, and um, you know as I said I think that um, you know culture is everywhere in this city it's, it, it's, I think it's, it's it, the best way of, of, of kind of imagining it its value is to to imagine if it wasn't there you know if kind of cinemas were empty and theatres were closed etc Um, And Grayson Perry's got a great quote, he said the other day, which is, uh, life without art would be a series of emails. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that is the landscape I just wanted to share with you, because it's what's preoccupying us at City Hall at the moment. Um, And I think it kind of leads us onto this question today, which is, you know, what what do we need to do? What funding models do we need? What do we need to do in order to uh, support and enable um, artistic talent and artistic life to thrive? Uh, in the UK and in the city. Um, is, that, is that model broken? Is it working? Does it need tweaking? Is there something better that we didn't know about? Um, so that's the kind of landscape for today. Um, and now I'm going to hand over to our amazing panelists, who I'm just going to briefly introduce. Um, so Alex um, Sainsbury is founder and director of Raven Row and um, also set up the Glasshouse Trust charity. And has recently taken over uh, becoming the chair of the Whitechapel Gallery, which is fantastic. Uh, And he describes himself as an oddball, in the sense that uh, he doesn't kind of fit in any one of these worlds. Uh, He kind of dips in and out of (coughs) them, so he's got an interesting perspective on today's debate. Um, And James, uh, co-director of Art Angel, along with Michael Morris, uh, for over 10 years. Um, 20. 20, oh my goodness. I you said ten. I was going to say that was short. It's doubled it. Yeah, yeah. 20 years. Uh, Art Angel, as you know, is an incredible leading commissioner of artistic practice in the UK and around the world. Um, and again, James has got a kind of dual interesting perspective. He's the trustee of two really large charities, uh, the Art Fund and the Paul Hamlin Foundation. Um, so again, both of our panellists have got very interesting uh, multiple perspectives on the topic today. <coughs> So, I'm going to first hand over to James to give us his opening reflections.
2: Um, thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm pleased to say that you didn't describe either Alex or myself as experts in this area, because we are, when we were both invited, we kind of said, well, we sort of, well, <coughs> we, we are involved as uh, producers, uh, uh, as, as runners of arts organisations with these complex questions of how to make arts organisations work and where to get the money from, but I don't think either of us would describe ourselves as experts. Um, So I think we had to draw on our our experiences rather than a lot of structural analysis. Um, But I wanted to start by just offering a a little sort of historical perspective um, inspired by a visit that I made to the Rena Sofia Museum in Madrid uh, over the weekend. Um, And I as I often do when I go there, I kind of gravitated towards the rooms um, uh, devoted to the display of uh, Picasso's Guernica and um, having looked at the painting and the other paintings and drawings that uh, were sort of arranged around it in, in uh, adjoining rooms, uh, I was drawn to a, 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 a small display of um, archival documents and one of these documents, or, or actually one of the, the cabinets um, uh, was was uh, laid out some of the exchanges and conditions surrounding uh, the bringing of Guernica to London uh, after it was first displayed first displayed uh, at in the Spanish pavilion um, in the Paris Exposition in 1937, and then uh, it was arranged Picasso wanted it to go on tour to other. Uh, important uh, European capitals. Um, and um, through his friendship with Roland Penrose, um, London was, um, I think it was the first uh, the first uh, venue for the tour, and actually it's often thought of that that was first at the Whitechapel Art Gallery. Sorry Alex, it wasn't quite the Whitechapel first, it was first actually showed at the New Burlington Galleries <laughs> in London. Uh, and then it went to Leeds, And Manchester, and then it came back for another two weeks at the Whitechapel Gallery. But the but the important thing about how did this happen? How was it made to happen? There was a group of thirty private patrons, pretty well all based in London, who got together to pay for Picasso's Guernica to come to London. And like a group of subscribers, they're listed on the front of the uh, of the catalogue. Um, about uh, Guernica at, um, at the New Burlington Galleries, um, and some of the names would be, uh, it would be familiar to people involved in not There were people like Roland Penrose, the great friend and uh, patron of Picasso, and uh, Peter Gregory and E.L.T. Masons, and, and Virginia Woolf, actually, one or two uh, people who had been associated with the, the Bloomsbury group. So was sort of, I was thinking, oh, this is almost like a perfect group of, um, of patrons, kind of uh, wealthy uh, broad-minded, sort of left-leaning Republican um, uh, who, who came together. And I was wondering, well, you know, what, how could that happen today? Could it actually happen that a group like that could come together to bring work about, as a campaigning was yeah. specifically brought to London to um, raise awareness for the Republican cause and, and, and uh, the plight of, of, of what was going on in, in, in Spain at that time? Um, And, you know, we may reflect upon the fact that um, private philanthropy uh, is able on occasions to be more decisive Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, committed, in a way, to particular causes that can often be the case when um, a mixed economy uh, for arts funding is in place. Uh, don't worry I'm not going to be an apologist for anything except a mixed economy for arts funding over the course of the evening but it does give one cause for reflection because we sit here to get today I think to some extent um, with the assumption that the kinds of the sort of patterns of art funding that um, we've certainly worked with through through our careers um, a, a sort of if not inevitable that they are they are um, They're the ones that feel right, but actually, in in in, in the history of, if one takes the history of the patronage of the arts uh, over many centuries, of course, um, you know, compared with the patronage of uh, the church or uh, the court of of popes or princes or whatever, uh, in fact, the kinds of uh, funding of the arts which we're used to today are relatively it's relatively time limited period. It's only uh, really kicked off, it was kicked off actually by the same uh, uh, group of people who helped um, Guernica come to to London and were instrumental in the setting up of, uh, well first there was um, uh, an organisation for the Committee for the Encouragement of Music and the Arts set up during the Second World War and that evolved into the Arts Council. Um, And the first chairman of the Arts Council was a great economist, John Maynard Kings. Um, And in, by the sort of early, late 1940s, about 40 arts organisations were being supported through the first Arts Council. I think it was called the Arts Council of Great Great Britain at that time. Um, We're now, some 70 years later, um, there's been um, an exponential growth um, in the kinds and the numbers of arts organisations which are supported by the Arts Council. I think it's about a 1,000 organizations now. Um, um, And we're facing, um, I think, uh, 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 perhaps um, the prospect that certainly the growth of uh, this kind of funding is coming to an end. And we're now beginning, uh, uh, I think, uh, to have to uh, contemplate and imagine uh, an evolved model of the funding which we 've uh, we 've become become used to, so you know, I think we need to reflect well, it would be interesting to reflect tonight on how what we think the shape of things to come will be and, and um, you know what the implications are for arts organizations of very different scales, you know whether we 'll see um, a significant centralizing of uh, of uh, power and uh, resources, you know what happens to really smaller arts organisations, hap- what happens um, across the UK rather than just um, in London. Um, just a couple of words about Artangel. Um, I mean we in a sense epitomise the sort of mixed funding model which um, uh, has become uh, increasingly encouraged. Um, so it's a combination of, of, of public funding through the Arts Council of England um, of uh, private uh, giving, private patrons, um, and uh, importantly for us of international co-production. So I think most arts organizations are involved in one, some kind of form of, uh, of um, sharing of costs or um, trans- commercial transactions, if you like, of, of um, and, we 're not so involved in box office ourselves, but obviously um, income earning is an extremely important part of the the revenue mix for lots of lots of our organizations uh, so for us these these different elements make for kind of volatile, but you know at the moment it 's a sort of combination which, which we manage to make work, giving us the maximum degree of um, flexibility actually to be decisive in relation to the projects that we want to get behind. Um, but it, the, the model does absolutely depend. It's, it's fundamentally underpinned by um, public funding. And I would, I would describe it uh, a little bit like, like this, in a sense that, that every project we, we every individual uh, project we, we commission and produce is a little bit like trying to build a house of cards. And um, you couldn't build a house of cards unless you had a table start or some sort of stable flat surface on which to begin and for us public funding gives us that kind of stable underpinning or uh, um, str- you know, s- s- supporting structure and with that behind us we can we can sort of move forward and try and successfully build these you know, this, this rather fragile structure um, with the support of private individuals, chari- the charitable sector, colleagues from around the world um, Etc., etc., and I've thought, (sighs) tried to think about whether how we might imagine a different kind of structure which would enable us to work in the way that we do, and I haven't been able to do it. (laughs) Um, So that's either a lack of imagination or the fact that I've just got used to this particular kind of mix, volatile though it is. But I, I do, you know, it is fairly clear to me that the kinds of The arts ecology that we have at the moment, which takes in, you know, a huge range of organisations and very, very ambitious programming all across the UK, would not be possible without uh, the kinds of um, public funding that we have in place at the moment.
1: That's really great. Thank you. Can I I just pick up on one of the things you said about um, the table? <coughs> um, because um, I was reading a, an article by uh, an interview with Vivian Duffield who as many of you know is a great patron of the art and it was about uh, her work with the Royal Opera House and, um, and she said when she first started working the Royal Opera House state funding made up 90% of the uh, balance sheet um, and now it makes up only 23% um, in terms of the government funding, 25% is, is uh, philanthropic or corporate and the rest is earned Uh, And I think that's across the board. We've reached this kind of mixed model idea where um, it's a bit of private, a bit of earned, a bit of public, a third, a third, a third. Um, But I was struck in the article um, when she had a different analogy, which was about cake. (laughs) Um, And she said, the thing is, um, we used to be the icing on the cake, and now we're the cake. Um, And to her, the, the kind of, you know, the thrust of the article was that in this kind of rebalancing act her worry was you know, have we gone too far? Our arts organisations now in too much of a fragile position where they're so dependent on raising all this extra money it's kind of detracting them from the core work um, which I thought was interesting. So I guess the question around that is what do you feel is the right balance?
2: You, you, you like. I couldn't offer mm-hmm. a right balance of the, of the cake in, in quantitative mm-hmm. terms. I, wou- I would say that I, I genuinely um, don't believe that it's been, um, you know, the fact that we work with this sort of mixed economy has been, um, you know, really uh, detrimental to mm-hmm. the kinds of work that we produce. Actually, I think it has fueled the growing ambition mm-hmm. of arts organizations. So I don't think that, that um, philanthropy um, has, you know, uh, has pushed oh. arts organizations into, uh, into s- just simply serving the causes or the, uh, of those mm. philanthropists. I mean, I think, maybe, what do you think about I that? I think
3: that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, um, tenuous. I, I mean, of course it does. Um, I, where to start? Um, I, I'm afraid I didn't come with, a, um, unfortunately, a, um, a useful preamble, but I suppose my first thought was really um, to wonder about uh, you know, what kind of art we want and therefore um, um, you know, what's the best way to fund the kind of art that we want, and that's obviously a very different way of thinking about this question about philanthropy. Um, I think we're we'll all agreed that a mixed model is inevitably the case, so, um, but there are, you know, I, this just begs far more questions that can be answered. So it opens up whole questions of um, you know, the role of the state and the efficacy of the state and, and the role of the artist and the ability of the artist to self-organize. In a way, I would, you know, I would always advocate self-organization on the part of artists as the most efficient way to um, construct good art. And so the institution is a kind of you know, a platform or a holding environment for that context to take to, to be enabled. Uh, that would be the ideal. Um, and then there are, um, to of vast philosophical debates I'm not party to, really, about the role of art in culture and its utility, uh, its usefulness. And famously, the Anglo-Saxons have always been a little bit uh, wary about the utility of art. Um, and it is, it's a, it's a, it's a um, I, it was very heartening hearing Justine talk about it. You can just um, you know, bang your fist on the table and say 32 million or whatever it is that you just quoted as the sum that the creative sector brings to London, and that's a very useful thing to be able to quote. I think um, it is very nebulous, the, the, you know, the value. Um, that art brings to culture and it therefore needs to be argued at a time when we are, we've always been, the Brits I'm talking about, a very material culture so we, we, um, we seek results, material results, um, perhaps in the shorter term than some of our continental uh, and more philosophically minded governments who have thought that art for its own sake is simply a good thing and there should be more of it and the idea of funding an institution um, to the hilt, um, without questions asked about visitor numbers or, or, or outcomes, is something that uh, uh, you know is it's not something that Britain would ever take on. And in fact, you know, interestingly, it's not something the continent is 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 continuing to accept. And the model that um, Chris Smith, I perhaps would like to credit with him with bringing to uh, the New Labour agenda. And we must remember that when New Labour came into government, they came in really as one of the first, although I'd love to have this refuted, governments um, in recent times with a specific agenda for the arts. And that is what has sort of skewed things and complicated things and sophisticated things. Um, there's a lot of question about visitors, um, um, and there's a lot of questions about um, a sort of short-term uh, success, which is either reflected in a visitor figures or in the kind of pizzazz that that our art projects can bring, um, and that's I'm just actually coming round to addressing what James asked uh, at the end, which is, do you think that um, the role of corporate sponsorship or private sponsorship affects the kind of art that is made? And I think, um, you know, and again, um, you know, God bless the New Labour project and all the rest, but in the end, they ended up talking about the wow factor, and I think that um, there is a sort of a, a, a short-termism that is brought to bear on um, outcomes in art, which is maybe uh, inappropriate. I mean, it's just the biggest question is what kind of art we really value, and then that begs all sorts of complicated questions about you know, democratic agenda, about popularity, about the elite role or the particular role of art, the specialist role of art. Um, and I just reflect in a way, uh, I was driving up um, um, Park Lane yesterday and it's, not, it's a gloomy site, Park Lane, and there are lots of really great sites. The Fourth Plinth is a great site. Most of what Ardangel do is fantastic, I think. Really amazing. So so that's sort of the hooray story. But the gloomy story is when you kind of come round a high park, on, the first thing you see are those Queen Mother's Gates, which tell me aren't the most stupid thing you've ever seen. Um, so there's a royal family that are, uh, you know, idiotic patrons and have a history of that. You know, back to, obviously, the greatness of the man who lost his head, but that, you know, there we are. It's a complication. So, and then you move up the Park Lane and you see simply the most asinine and banal sculptural works you're ever going to see. And I, I don't know why they're there. Someone <coughs> could tell me. that. I suspect they are sponsored by um, no, art West galleries. West maybe. Westminster, yeah. Westminster Council are so, out the So space. we have to ask, you know, sorry, is that what we really want? And how can we avoid more of that? <coughs> um, and, and So it's very difficult meeting, you know, a physicist, a nuclear physicist, a mathematician. Uh, it's very difficult talking to a vet about the utility of art. It really is, and and you know, uh, there was statistics that came out um, that I just read, um, and you know, I don't know what to make of them. What do you make of them? That the British netball uh, effort is paid, is, is gets 1.1 million, which seems right. There must be a lot of people who play netball out there and the Serpentine Gallery gets 1.1 million as well. Is that right? Or is that not right? I, I don't know. I can't say, it's an outrage, you know, who plays netball? Um, but I don't know who goes to the Serpentine Gallery. It's obviously a very, um, it's very localized who plays netball yeah uh, uh, you know, English public school girls hours. yeah yeah uh, and the badminton federation which we you know wonder about gets 1.8 million which is about is more than the 1.5 million that comes to the whitechapel but again badminton is a national sport presumably um, so 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 mm, i don't really know but i think i mean the first thing to do is to assert the the value of art which is And then kind of pull back from there and ask what the value of philanthropy is in relation to that. What amazes me—sorry, I'm waffling now—but I'm moving on to America suddenly. May I? You may. I'm amazed by how American patronage works because um, it seems everybody—you know—in order to be rich in America, you know, it's not just conspicuous consumption; it's conspicuous sponsorship. It's an amazing operation. So, so to be publicly rich is a very, very important... I believe that some American, please tell me how this works, that this is an important sort of aspect of of wealth in America and and, and a civic responsibility that rich Americans feel, which is, you know, amazing to... And I guess um, we don't feel that here or we feel awkward about that and I mean someone once asked me to join a board of a relatively small arts organization in New York and said what's in it for you Willie? if you give us 15,000 a year it's about that and I sort of fell off my chair and I even thought my god but being a member of a board is such a sort of responsibility and a, and a you know sacrifice of time I thought that was just the gesture I didn't realize you've got the checkbook out and paid for it it's amazing what patrons do in America towards the arts and I don't know how we inculcate that idea in England. I don't know whether it's a good idea, but I suspect that it would also influence hugely the kinds of art that is shown here, if not made here. But it's a, it's a balance because America seems to make it work, and only terrible incidents like what happened in the West Coast you know, with MoCA, where a, a sponsor got hold of the whole museum and took it over, which is, you know, that caused an outcry. It doesn't often happen. Normally, a mixed economy can keep things tense and balanced.
1: Well, there are certainly
2: certainly more, uh, I mean, I think um, funding from one sole source, whether it actually is state funding mm. or one private individual, is obviously potentially much more volatile. And, and it makes the, um, the organisation in question much more vulnerable mm. to being you know, positioned mm. in relation to those particular particular interests. So I think there's a kind of... Uh, there is a strength in numbers, in the in the in the mixed economy. Um, I wanted to pick up on a couple of things you said, Alex, um, about um, new labour, and 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 whether that kick started. Um, the kind of the um, approach to arts funding we got at the moment. I think it's worth just actually kind of rolling back mm-hmm. a little bit further because probably the key funding decision made in in relation to the arts funding uh, in the UK actually was at the end of um, the previous regime when the National Lottery was set up. Mm-hmm. It was famously kind of set up um, in relation to um, Why was in relation to the millennium? I know what was it set up in relation. Was it the millennium? And no, but it was set up in '96, but with a. You may know more about it than me. Anyway, it was it was definitely before '97 because it was it was famously set up at the end of uh, John Major's government, with a kind of almost like. I don't know whether this is anecdotal or not, but with this kind of back-of-envelope stuff, oh, I know well, we'll do 25% to sports, 25% to um, the millennium, 25% to the heritage, oh, and 25% to the arts. All policies made on the back yeah, of the
1: moment.
2: Right, and um, I mean, actually that has that produced um, a huge wave of, uh, of investment in infrastructure for the arts. So one of the things that we are beneficiaries of today even though many of these organizations are uh, finding uh, it, it difficult to, to, um, uh, to run the programs they want to do is this incredible uh, growth in arts infrastructure. So if one just thinks just in in Newcastle Gateshead the the investment that went into first the sage Gateshead or first the Baltic in Gateshead and then the sage in Gateshead. And these kinds of amazingly uh, ambitious organisations in different cities around uh, the UK simply wouldn't have been possible without the lottery, which is, you know, another form of public funding, albeit coming from, you know, tax on gambling, which is not public funding, so to speak. (laughs) So... um, (coughs) And one of the interesting things that that, that is happening right now, and it will change the way that lots of arts organisations are likely to have to make their pitches, is that lottery funding is increasing, and funding through other public streams is decreasing. So the first time, for the first time uh, ever, um, it's about 50-50, and... what what is likely to happen is that there will be I think there are very different kinds of strings attached to the way lottery funding will be distributed in the future um, which is likely to make a lot of that funding much closer to what local communities want or say that they want and and much less what uh, larger scale arts organizations um, want or say that they want.
1: I'm going ask a good question to either of you which is um, about evolving this idea of evolving <coughs> models um, and there was a big push uh, when um, Jeremy Hunt was Secretary of State <laughs> towards philanthropy um, and it was a big kind of government policy to encourage philanthropy um, and more recently we've seen pushes towards things like crowdfunding the kind of bottom up fo- um, funding um, and um, yeah I just and I was reading about um, some, some work in america there 's uh, this idea of the one 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 pledge i don 't know if anyone 's heard of it <coughs> where this idea that you put one percent of the equity of a start up one um, percent of employee time and one percent of services into into the social good, um, which is interesting because w- that model builds in kind of support for the social good in its widest sense from the beginning of a startup rather than the usual model of growing a company until it's worth a lot of money and there's some rich people sitting at the top of it kind of handing out some cash to causes of their choice um so i just wondered if you felt there was a kind of shift you know this kind of small you know small gifts by lots of people through crowdfunding and this sort of model of knitting things in at the start of things at the ground, the ground level, so to speak, both in business and individually. I wondered if either of you had experience or thoughts about these different models. I I don't have
3: experience. I I can see that these ideas come from, um, the West, from, from America, um, to us. And they, they, um, it's an entirely different model of, of support where, but it, it just struck me suddenly that it was commensurate with the role of the idea of the artist. I mean, We've lionized the artist as this individual rather than as part of some sort of a, a collective. There are collective models for artistic practice, but the artist, the rugged individualist, seems to be sort of something that holds sway. And with that, there's this changing model in society where uh, a, a, the collective endeavor, the idea that the, gu- the state is the collective representation of our interests and, and sponsors, what needs to be sponsored, or whether we as individuals can choose you know, online which we spot fund. It's clear that that second model is mm-hmm. the one that's holding sway. It's I And mean, it makes us all very anxious, really, talking about kind of demo- democracy, because it's, mm-hmm. it seems an entirely valid enterprise that people are able to, to declare what they want. It, and it would take a brave politician to say, you know, it would be wise to think longer term and maybe less materially or less practically about what might be achieved through... Um, an extremely elite attitude towards I'm art. <laughs> What's that gonna get anywhere? It's very difficult selling that mm-hmm. in a democracy. So in the end, or the kind of democracy we're heading towards. So I, I suspect that that the kind of art we're gonna get is going to sort of reflect that new model that you're describing. Um, I don't know the way in which individual philanthropists can alter it. There've always been some good ones and some maybe not so good ones or not so enlightened ones. I think there's always a necessary tension as well between kind of the outcomes of art. Artists are hopefully, since the early 20th century, going to be kind of instinctively or quite often antagonistic towards um, the status quo, towards um, government structures, towards the rich, um, the privileged, um, the undeserving, the business, the capitalist success stories. And th- But those ones will always turn around and try to co-opt them and try and own them. So there's this interesting sort of uh, tension that takes place, perhaps creatively, constructively, culturally, between those two groups, and I, in a way that, that I suspect it's always been like that, and sort of
2: will happily continue like that. I'm not sure what. <laughs> um, well, the culture of phila- philanthropy has grown hugely in the last twenty years, and it will continue to grow. And I think, um, you know, I, I think, arts organisations. Uh, need to uh, adapt to um, to be kind of wise and clever about the way that they engage with philanthropy uh, without it unbalancing yeah. the the, um, the purposes yeah. um, of those. and I think to this moment um, I think that balancing act has been held mm. relatively well, I mean of course it's we don't quite know whether we come to a tipping point where, whereby we have moved so far away from this kind of social democratic European model um, towards this, you know, North North Atlantic model that that starts to change. I mean, that is, you know, one potential um, future. Um <clears throat> but when we talk about philanthropists, we, you know, it's so difficult to sort of clump them all together <laughs> as one. Uh, One sort of group who all have the same agendas or the same interests—they don't. Um, There was a report that actually there's a there's a very interesting um, organisation called New Philanthropy Capital, um, which uh, which was um, actually uh, founded by I think a group of uh, people, uh, senior people at Goldman Sachs, you know, also to try and look at the way of um, of philanthropy being as effective in its own terms as, as they might want other kinds of forms of investment to be not to apply the models of investment banking to philanthropy but just to ask kind of hard questions about how can we help advise philanthropists about how they might make their contributions and they came up with, with you know four, four, four kind of basic models ba- basic way, ways in which philanthropists want to get involved. One is because they just love the art It's a passion for a particular kind of art form, whether it's uh, chamber music or um, (coughs) poetry or um, painting, whatever. Um, The second was educational, um, the sense of of really feeling that that the kind of art that that they're interested in should be shared more, made available more broadly. The third was, um, I mean, they they call it economic, but I think this is where you could apply the regeneration model Mm -hmm. that is actually uh, individuals um, who are particularly invested in a particular uh, part of uh, the UK. A notable example for that would be what's been going on in Folkestone um, for the last few years. I can't remember the name of... uh, no, the Folkestone Triennale, but the name of the um, individual. Uh, Roger Dehaan, yes. um who's I think in, has connections with the area, um, Saga, the company <laughs> he owns, has a maybe based there, and has, is very involved with, with um, trying to sort of uh, rebrand and rebuild um, Folkestone as a, as a cultural uh, yes. yeah. area of the s- south of England. And the fourth is, is, um, is social, really, when, when um, private individuals are really... Committed to helping or involved in a particular cause, whether it might be uh, homelessness or dementia or, or something like that, and feel that the arts is an important part of, uh, of, uh, part of, of how these issues can be addressed and There are lots of arts organizations which are specifically involved in these areas of work very effectively. But, um, and actually, producing a lot of very good uh, evidence about how valuable this kind of philanthropic investment can be. So, um, but the sorry, I yeah, but it. but, um,
3: but that this is—you've just put your finger on a, an in very interesting problem because no, I'm not interested in art that ticks any of those boxes. Um, in a way. or Not or, even the first one? No, that's beauty which is no longer relevant really. I am interested in poetry that's beautiful and music. I don't know, I don't know enough about those things. I'm, I'm kind of interested in the beautiful art but it's not seemingly what the agenda for art is at the moment. So I, I don't, you know, and education again is very nebulous. This was the new labor, um, great new labor cause, inclusivity in education and I'm not sure that, I, I'm, or I am interested in art that does that but I'm also interested in an art that antagonizes those very things. That is that challenges, that is not educative, that is anti-educative in a, in a, in a sort of formal sense, that that is. Um,
2: I would. I mean regeneration within, I of the social within the first. But I think. All,
3: so yeah, but again, when you picking you just your description was very appropriate. I think because you were angling towards the notion of beauty, which the rich will go back to over and over again, which is why you know they want their their beautiful pictures on the wall which is absolutely did, fine did, but it's not I really person. I mean we could, just <laughs> by saying that no but you mentioned that you said they love it you know uh, I, I'm mad for art I, you know it, it, but it's just I I really I think you've just pinpointed why we well, cannot I, I, let no, kind you, of rich philanthropists no. take over the agenda I, for art I think I, think I, th- I hadn't realised so strongly that I, think, I believed that but I'm, oh, I think I'm glad you, now to I, be a convert it's no, a no you're
2: not I think you love what you do at Raven Row Alex runs I'm a bit of an uh, oddball the No, Alex runs an organisation um, called Raven Row, which is, uh, you know gives um, a, a space to um, a range of different contemporary and relatively recent historic arts practices, which um, may be may be described you know, may fall in with your interest for, possibly yeah, love, I, for I, antagonistic yeah. arts practices and I would think that's for the love of... I'm not myself <coughs> into
3: a big hole here really I, I have done because it's sort of you know I, I, I get all my hackles rise when patrons groups come round to you know I, I, I don't get on very well
2: with them and, and No but I, they want to meet you uh, no, they, well, they no, they no they don't No they really don't actually they so Well they may really not afterwards not. but they think um, they do um, They look at their mobile telephones um,
3: th- th- I I um, yeah, I am an oddball in that way. So I'm very arrogantly going to say, "I'm hey, rather different," you know. I'm kind of very interested in other kinds of, <laughs> of things. So I was just, um, I just um, when I was coming here, um, I, uh, I um, texted my um, friend Dan Kidner, who's curating the next show at Raven Row, and, and one of the, uh, and it's a show of films, and um, there's a leftist film moment on on Wednesday, and it involves. It the first film is going to be um, the uh, heiress who funded the Zanzibar film. Uh, collective, and, and she did it. She spent all her money doing that. They were a radical group. Uh, she was called Poissonas, I think. She made her own films. I mean, you know, hooray for Mrs. Poissonas. And then I remembered Walter Ahrensberg. You know, these are the heroes, I guess, the rich who sort of, you know, worry about it a lot. And you see them in Venice quite a lot, Americans, like, smoking lots of cigarettes because they inherited a, few hundred million from their dad in New York and can't live there anymore because, you know, you've got, to, you've got to make money to be in New York and you can't sit around on your ass and sort of, you know, you go to Venice. It's funny. So there are, um, there are um, yeah, there are some sort of good rich people who drop out and pay some money towards art, but I, and definitely someone's gonna say, hey, don't let them set the agenda either, for Christ's sake. It is true that, as you say, with a platform, The the government is going to have to provide the necessary funding for its own sake to provide money for arts organisations to be relatively autonomous of the caprices and whims of a bunch of rich people who will undoubtedly make substantial contributions.
2: Well, I I think it's it's interesting, even looking at the landscape of uh, visual arts in London today, that there are um, quite a number of privately run... Spaces open to the public, or projects open to the public, and I'm, I'm thinking, and some of these, if you like, capricious individuals, are, have been extraordinarily uh, have made extraordinary contributions in relatively short periods of time to what we are able to see and Charles look at. Saatchi, of course, the first. I was thinking um, of of James Brett, for example, uh, the man who set up uh, something called the Museum of Everything. Um, and he is effectively a collector of what the, the easiest uh, way of describing is outsider art. But it's, it's, it's of, of, of uh, I mean, I think most people here know roughly what that I- encompasses. Um, and has privately, obviously, he's acquired a lot of work privately, but also privately um, funded a wide range of extraordinary presentations from his collection. And has made a singular contribution to what we can see and the way we understand. Uh, you know, this, this, this kind of art. So, you know, I'm all for um, the capricious individual. I'm even open to capricious individuals who then try and bring a public, evolve their, their private um, enterprise into a mixed economy, which is after all what happened with the ICA and what happened with most of the arts organisations that uh, we have in this country. Um, you know, I James Brett is probably also you know he buys and sells art because that helps, and but so long as it's you know it's it's driven by this huge passion, <laughs> um, if even you know or capriciousness if you like, um, you know it's a good thing for um, the landscape of contemporary art in London now.
3: It certainly is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So. It, it, we don't need to be dependent on it. So it would be dangerous if we were. That's all I was arguing.
2: No, of course, um, and um, well, we know that most of the substantial arts organisations in in uh, London, such as the Whitechapel, probably the Serpentine, certainly the Tate, you know, where British Museum are hugely dependent on this underpinning. a yeah, public
3: said, funding platform. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, a question that was raised much earlier about the f- funding for the you know, art in museums and how art that is now valued in the way it is can find its way into museums when you do simply put out a piece of paper, do you want a, you know, Andy Warhol or do you want a new wing on your hospital? And it really is, you know, obviously a
2: ridiculous question. I I mean, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, some of the, uh, I mean, these are, we've got to be careful not to sort of focus only on on the, the sort of individuals who have huge amounts of money. Because the growth of philanthropy in the UK is also going to come from lots of people who embrace giving you know, as mm-hmm. part of their living, um, rather than just as part of what they do when they're dying, um, which is also an American model, you know, rather than just wait to... But no, no, it's actually to be involved in something, rather than just wait and hand it over afterwards. Um, and just to talk of my sort of personal experience, I mean, I would think you know, Art Angel set up its first private patron scheme called the Company of Angels in, in 1993 to help um, fund uh, uh, Rachel White house, actually. And you, you, you were probably one of the yeah, first, not, not first the angels. I, that was the first no. project
3: of yours I saw. Um,
2: Which was, like, and uh, so I guess probably that, you know, we, we probably had, I would guess, around 500 individual patrons involved at different levels in our organisation and I can honestly say although many of those individuals have said after the fact they really loved or really disliked something we've done, that we haven't had one of those individuals come to us and say we are giving you this money because we want you to do such and such a thing. So I think there is a kind of way in which bringing together um, a broad group of philanthropists is enabling rather than orchestrating mm. the direction of the organization. And I think that's the kind of philanthropy which is more... Do you think, popular. though, to
3: put it bluntly, James, that Artangel isn't under quite a lot of pressure to make the spectacular?
2: Um, no, I don't think so, actually. And if, that was, if there is that pressure, that would come, I think, more strongly from public funding than it would come from private philanthropy. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, no, I, I dare say it would actually, but i' just thinking about the perhaps the negative pressures that come from um, i mean i 'm very mindful of the fact that you do not only the spectacular and some of the most spectacular have been some of the most amazing. Remember Robert Wilson down on Clink Street um, mm-hmm. uh, more brilliant and more spectacular you couldn 't imagine but but there is I, th- I suspect there's a, uh, a pressure on organizations to be spectacular with, with, with certainly with corporate sponsorship.
2: I think there's a pressure on organizations to um, be able to present themselves as successful. Mm. (laughs) Um, You know, and that can come both in terms of uh, media awareness or or visitor figures, or actually of turnover. There are these (laughs) these different um, sort of measures. But uh, I wouldn't say necessarily the spectacular is is part of that.
1: Great. Well, it's half seven. And I've been told to open it out at half seven for questions, so we're bang on time. Um, if that's okay with you guys, we'll open it out, yeah? Um, we've got to speak into our microphones a bit louder. Uh, oh, I mean, okay. Was a
2: bit f- sorry about that.
1: Brilliant. Okay. So, Q&A. Who would like to ask a question at the back with the blue polo you want to say uh, your name and uh, the note I have to give you is to ask a specific question rather than to make kind of a, a long statement. <coughs> Only the panel can do that. Yeah
4: sure, good evening. Um, my name is William Wong um, it's really a deja vu for me tonight um, but a short question is really I'm not at all worried about the arts in the UK. I am deeply worried about arts management. And if I may just give the context a little bit, because otherwise this sounds rather arrogant. Um, I'm personally a beneficiary of um, arts philanthropy, uh, no less from Dame Vivian Duffield herself, uh, being a Claw Fellow back in 2007 to 09. So I've seen the transition from the end of the boom um, to the global bust in 08. And in 2010, the whole sector was literally in panic about the change of government. And of course, we are where we are. Um, I have great respect for all the exchanges tonight. But for me, it's, I feel rather sad, as if the conversations haven't moved on from the time when I was a CLAW fellow, having access to a lot, a lot of these discussions and debates, and people coming to our residential, um, for those of you who know. So do you
1: have a question?
4: Yeah. Um, my question is, um, I think maybe we need a completely different kind of dialogue. Because as if nothing has moved on. still
1: not a question. <laughs> uh, I,
4: the question really is, Do how, we need, maybe? Uh, how? No, I don't think it's how? do we, we okay. do. I'm, I'm, I, I I'm feel help very help passionate that we do, otherwise we will still be here by the next general election. How do we break out of this mode of thinking? And that's simply because I, I I just felt, look, last year I read a very small article in the Times, it just caught my eye, and Maria Miller, the last Culture secretary, went to Osborne to negotiate the uh, DCMS budget. And uh, we all think, hmm, of course uh, they will be asked. Actually, Osborne said, can you raise the sum? because you're not ambitious enough? That really startled me. And today, the chancellor actually said a lot of government departments have to have, you know, endure 30% cut, including the treasury. So really, I mean, now I'm an architect myself. I, I work in photography, not in theater anymore. we can't just keep complaining about austerity in the government. We've got to move on. Okay. So the question really is, how do we break out of this mold?
1: Okay, thank you very much. Thanks. I'm going to hold that question, and I'm going to take a couple more, and then we'll come back. Okay, uh, in the middle here, the guy with the checked scarf, is it, you have? And then we'll take uh, the lady over there with the grey T-shirt. So we'll collect a few and then we'll...
2: Yeah, I'm Simpson Schillingford from the west of London. Um, my is issue... I? Simpson Schillingford, son of Sim.
3: Um, my issue here is about, it's been really interesting um, dialogue, but mine is about the question of structural analysis. And uh, the two speakers mentioned one did, went for philanthropy and capital in terms of the American model, but as the arts generally in the UK has hit the buffers, in my experience, in terms of creativity, should we go for the models of philanthropy and capital, or should we go for the public investment in terms of like social enterprise, development, regeneration?
1: So, uh, should we follow more of the U.S. model, yeah, or, or, or should go for we go the for more UK, kind of socially led regeneration kind of, yeah. the, kind of? Okay, okay. And then we'll take one more. Dana, where are you there? Um, I was just wondering. Um, I mean, I think there should be like you know um, a mixed you know kind of dialogue mm. with uh, private and uh, public investment. Um, I'm just wondering though, like. talking about the honesty, really, of it all. Um, I mean, James, you're talking about, like, that the philanthropy has gone up, you know. Um, Would that have gone up uh, without the tax breaks, do you think? Mm. Okay. Thank you. Mm. Great. Okay, so, question about honesty. Uh, What is the role of the tax break? Um, Interesting because there's tax breaks, particular thing that have been seen to uh, encourage philanthropy in the U.S., um, question about structure: um, What do we think about the U.S. model versus a more social, socially-led model? And then uh, a question about how do we break out of current thinking? From William, who wants to start?
3: No, I mean these are all very good questions, or I don't know whether I can. But I mean. I, the, one of the questions, because we've talked about um, funding for the arts, and I suppose we could think about um, we could think about that differently. Uh, exhibitions have become more and more expensive, and it is crazy how much they cost. It's it's if we're talking about artists making art and then somehow enabling their visibility of that art. There must be a more clever way of enabling that to happen. Um, one of the uh, very, very prohibitive elements to this is property, is the availability of space, which has become a massive problem. And when I started uh, getting involved in art uh, in London, uh, about the same time as Rachel Whitetree's house, that there was, um, you know, there was so much available space, and it was in that that people, you know, students could pour, people could pour to see art, and that was it enabled art to be made very inexpensively. Obviously, the living costs of artists has so, risen exponentially as well, to do with property. So. But the sort of st- this model I mentioned earlier, this 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 fantasy of sort of self-organisation. I mean, it's maybe it's a libertarian model. It could appeal to the right. It's it's about like organisations doing it for themselves. Damien Hurst, Thatcher's child, was the first famously to do that. Well, not the first, but he did it bloody well, uh, and uh, and launched his career in the in the um, late 80s, um, you know, as an entrepreneur right out of Thatcher's mould. But it, c- can we think the model through by enabling? Um, Act, art activity to take place um, and funding it. And I think the Arts Council do that actually as well, fund l- grassroots organizations much smaller scale than the kinds of very large and very cumbersome and very expensive institutions which require a great deal of funding. I, it was a very, uh, you know, an, at one level it's libertarian, but another level you could think it's a bit Maoist. You know, you just spread a bit of cash here and there and some philanthropists are doing a bit of that themselves, spreading money here and there and seeing what happens. And that may be also, I, there was another question coming up about whether we're too londono centric but again, I think you know we have to move out of London, we have to find ways to get out of this city which is so expensive and so impossible. Artists have always relied on on sort of the capital focus in order to, you know, the culture is you know, lives here, Something but the, the, we need to find a way to, to move that out elsewhere so that, so that um, different arts communities can proliferate in less expensive places, um, where property can be found easier and more things can be seen uh, cheaper, which will make everybody happy. I mean, that's, you know, and I don't know um, um, whether that sort of deals with breaking out the mould and self-organisation, other models, just to, to answer the lady over there, though unfortunately there's no way I could um, operate Raven Row except without it, with a giant tax break, which is what I get for doing it. So it is one of those things. Um, I just couldn't do it without it. So, I mean, I could, but then I'd have to... You know, I don't know, I like being rich, it's fun. I don't know, it's <laughs> of... Um, um, you know, of course I could give it all away to do that. It would, it would probably be a better thing, but, but it is very helpful. You know, the breaks that rich people get to, to make money. Everybody gets, actually, but the wealthy benefit more than anybody for giving money to, um, to charity. And art is deemed a charity, which is a funny thing. It's a construction where you see that, you know, on one hand, you've got alleviation of suffering, and on the other hand, you've got, like, art.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
5: Sorry?
3: the rich or a corporate. I don't know about corporate tax breaks, actually. I dare say they get them, too. I'm not
2: quite sure how that works, actually. Okay. Um, I mean, it's interesting. The first two questions, um, you know, Williams and, and the gentleman there, were both about um, this being a, a broken model in some way. And I don't see it as being a broken model. I see it as a model under stress, <laughs> actually. Um, And there are particular areas of stress which um, are only going to be addressed through, uh, you know, different. The two particular areas I think about over the next 10 years, which are potentially catastrophic. Forget about the kind of work we do, but if we look at the broader landscape of the arts, and the first is arts education, (laughs) um, and that is a dire situation. And the second is the plight of regional museums and galleries, um, and that is also a dire situation. Um, and at the moment, the, the, the way that the mold is going to be broken, and I don't know wh- if, if this is something that you would embrace, is the fact that there will be a lot less arts education, there will be a lot less opportunity for regular people to uh, to enjoy a decent level of arts education, and there will be a lot less museums and galleries offering anything like an interesting experience, and there will be quite a few that have had to close down. Um, So if we accept the model is broken, it's like, well, we accept that. (laughs) We say, okay, there's a radical shrinking in these two incredibly important areas. Or do we continue to fight and fight to argue for um, arts education not to be marginalized, as is part of the current um, uh, Ministry of Education uh, thinking? Um, And do we... uh, Encourage. Do we encourage national and local government to get together to imagine different ways in which the museums and galleries, after all, sit on huge assets. And I'm not talking about divesting those assets, but different ways in which they can come up with a financial model to keep their doors open and to make the places dynamic and energetic. So, um, you know, I I can see whether there are areas which are seriously under stress. Um, Coming up. I mean, I can't sort of, you know, and we've got to try and adapt to those, but I can't see that we have to just, there has to be a total, we we can sit here and imagine a completely different model which will be better than what we've got unless it involves a kind of pretty radical shrinking of the cultural infrastructure that we have at the moment. And that's not something I particularly want to, you know, uh, argue for. Thank you. Okay, next round
1: of questions. A guy in the Blue
6: shirt. Alec? Yeah, uh, Um. Roman uh, Tynan, at Roman L. Tynan. My Twitter handle is a very useful way of finding out who I am. I First of all, want to thank you for a fascinating uh, presentation tonight and your uh, sort of uh, diversification to philosophy at the end about this pressure to find spectaculars, because really we do live in a hits culture, really, so it's not surprising that it affects (coughs) artists particularly, because without a hit, you're nobody. I'm not saying that I don't subscribe to those values myself. But I just want to ask a very fundamental question because, Madam Chairperson, you gave quite a number of interesting nuggets tonight um, in terms of the economics of the arts, and it's something I have always been curious about, although I am a documentary filmmaker, so I kind of interface with the arts world, if you like. Um, one statistic you gave us was that thir- the n- amount of studio space will decline by 30% in five years. But then you gave us a fascinating insight, which I think from a historical point of view should really, ex- should really have seen the uh, United Kingdom perhaps become a kind of center of renaissance in the 21st century, that John Maynard Keynes was the first chairperson of the Arts Council. Mm-hmm. Now I just want to ask this question because it seems to me, since I've only moved to London relatively recently, that there's no city on the planet that benefits more from arts and culture as palpable, but at the same time it's obviously under stress to the rise in property prices, the impact on artists' living conditions, the fact that so many appear to be making plans to leave or already left and so forth. So the very uh, dynamo if you like, one of the dynamos that have driven this great city is under amazing stress, and yet there's a huge economic case that can so easily be made for it. And you, obviously, Madam Chair, have a very distinguished role in trying to, I suppose, at a key policy level, make that case. I'm, I'm really almost gobsmacked that you have to make that case in London because the economic return is so transparent. So I, that's why when you say about need for models, I don't think there's any need for a model. There's what we do need, however, and it's palpable, it's very obvious, is some means of communicating, especially to the government of whatever hue, of the economic case for the arts, which, as I say, we're talking about real jobs, real prosperity, real dynamic growth in the the creative industry, and a contribution to the atmosphere that makes London so special that is now under very serious, I would argue, threat because of that shocking driving up of property prices in a way that is, as I say, negatively impinging on the arts world. Thank you.
1: Thank you. To we take another here, the guy here with the black cardigan? Is it? Yeah? Do you want to wait for a microphone? Yeah, there's someone there. Who else? Yeah, you were the glasses. Okay, I'll take the seat and then I'll come to you at the next slot. Okay, so go. I hope this doesn't
7: sound trite, because um, um, James Brett is a very great dealer, and he's done very great things, but I'd just like to sort of ask her, a rhetorical question which is this kind of a sub debate really You used him as a sort of an exemplar of a new spirit you know a new type of philanthropy which sort of always he's not scared of getting his hands dirty and dealing and so on i mean do you think it's i mean do you think it's entirely right for you know you might say people for the, um for therapeutic communities and people in therapeutic communities to be you know kind of thrown into shark filled waters you know in the, in the primary outsider art market i just i just wondered what your thoughts were on that
1: can you sorry, your name, sorry?
2: Yeah. Carl. Carl. So, sorry, the, the question About the sh- is... the The, quest- the is, question is... Is it, is it right for for work art. made by individuals with mental health issues to be, to be uh, mm-hmm. bought and sold? To be,
7: fu- to, be, to be fully exposed to sort of, you might say, the, the sort of shark-filled waters, as I think somebody called it once, of contemporary art. Because, I mean, that, that, I mean, you know, as wonderful as what James Brett does, it just occurred to me, I thought to myself, I didn't... I didn't really like to let that pass, you know, as a kind of model.
1: Let's take another question, the um, one with the glasses there.
5: My name is Marianne Magnin from the Cornelius Arts Foundation, and my question relates to value, time... What's your name
1: again? Slower.
5: Marianne. 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 Thanks. My question relates to value, time, and uh, risk. Yep. And I would like to ask the panel whether they see any parallel between art and research uh, drawing some parallels between fundamental research whose uh, benefits are not necessarily palpable right now and uh, applied research quite often and most of the time funded by private sector with immediate rewards or more likely uh, tangible rewards sorry would you mind just giving the question any parallel yeah, repeat the question once more for us. Okay. Is there any parallel between art and research? Art and research, parallels between art and research. Yes, on the notion of time in that context with uh, long-term research, fundamental research, and applied
1: research. Okay. Great, okay, so we've got uh, actually two questions on value, related, uh, uh, so Roland, um, I think to paraphrase how we are gonna really communicate the value of culture and art, um, because clearly people aren't getting it. Um, and you're on value um, parallels between art and research. Uh, and then Carl uh, had a question about um, outsider art and whether people, some people making art outside of a professional context, um, what happens when that work kind of interfaces with the more commercial art market? Yeah, yeah? with commercial, with commercial funding. funding. Does that sound right? Who would like to take any of those?
2: Well, um, I think maybe I should try and respond to you. Um, And uh, it's a very interesting question you raise, and it's um, you know the reason that um, work of this kind has become really valued, really over the last hundred years or so, because it has produced. In the sense of, it, it was initially kind of thrown into, uh, you know, modernism as a, as a, because of its sort of subversive energies, um, and <coughs> also with a sense, you know, backed by uh, individuals in in uh, medical and therapeutic communities who who thought that this work needed to be seen as a way of people understanding and respecting the creativity. Um, uh, and and I th- so I think fundamentally it's important that this work finds its place in the world. So yeah. now, the second part of your question, which is really interesting, is is of course this difficult area where of consent, <laughs> like, whereby um, the artists may make work um, and <clears throat> people who are their carers or people who inherit the work or whatever or discover it, um, Then you know may want to put it out into the world um, for for sort of profit, and you know there is obviously a history that it's now entered the commercial world. There are all sorts of specialist teachers. and all I can say is that you know one hopes that people, the the, people who are uh, instrumental in getting this work into the world, are as attentive as they can be to some of these issues, but. You know, there's work will co- has historically come from artists like Henry Darger, Darger, or Bill, some of the great figures, or Bill, you know, who, who, who wouldn't have been in a position to. I'm not really talking about yep. historical okay. secondary art yep. I'm thinking about the primary art market, yep. where you have a, a whole network of individuals who mm-hmm. are producing art on mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. basis, mm-hmm. and this art is mm-hmm. going straight to market. Mm-hmm. And I just found that quite interesting. It's, it's not generally going, going straight to market, I would say. I mean, there's an awful lot of. I mean, there's a very interesting um, uh, ongoing project run by Pallant House in uh, in Chichester, which is particularly embraced, um, you know, showing work by by artists of all of all kinds. And you know, the imperative is not commercial; the work doesn't find itself doesn't go straight to market. But it may be that from within, you know, they will have shown hundreds of artists. Um, uh, Uh, over the course of this project. And I don't honestly, I haven't followed it closely, but there may be one or two that then find themselves into the market. It's extremely difficult to prevent that (laughs) if you know there are, if either the artists themselves consent or people decide on their behalf that, that that's a way in which their work can get greater exposure or that they might actually benefit from it which could improve their quality of life. So it's extremely it's extremely complicated. (laughs) <laughs>
3: yeah. uh, I was just going to um, with a thought about um, the relationship between art and research. I think there is again this. It goes back to this valuing of art for its own sake—a question of what that sake is when it isn't anything else. Um, and you know, there is a lot of philosoph- there's a philosophical underpinning to that but i you know and again where the statistics come that declare 33 million pounds is accrued to london through the creative industries is that people staying in hotels close to tate i don't I don't know quite how that is calculated. So it is difficult to sell art at a material level, and it's clearly useful. I was just remembering, you know, one of the few sources of funding that appear to be available to artists at the moment comes from the AHRC, you know, who are are by definition a research organization and promote artistic research. So that long-term artistic research is funded um, currently, and it's in a way on the level of academia that you will get increased funding for the arts when so little else is available. But I'd like to see a kind of an art for art's sake attitude to, to art. But I, I, do, I agree that doesn't come with a 100% government funding model attached either. I think my phone was a question about risk and the time when get you get your return investment, it's an emotional return. Uh, it's like a
1: return mm,
3: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just a sort of kudos somehow for a cruise.
1: Okay, there was a little cluster of people who had their hands up. Three people on that row, convenient for microphone person. Hello, I'm Vasiliki
5: Zanaku from ArtIntra. What's uh, your name, sorry, sorry? Vasiliki. Vasiliki.
1: Vasiliki. Yes.
5: <laughs> uh, what I wanted to, to ask the panel is actually how much the internet has changed philanthropy
1: hmm.
5: uh, because it's, you, you briefly mentioned about uh, crowdfunding, but now we have new initiatives as such, for instance, uh, from Beaconsfield. Um, that they're creating a, a, a kind of permanent crowd fund, crowdfunding source um, process mm-hmm. where you can use at any point the funds to produce projects. Mm-hmm. So I think this is starting to change the market and how philanthropy can go. Even y- with even one pound, each one can become a supporter and a patron of the mm-hmm. arts. So yes, this is a question.
1: Okay, great. Thank you.
3: Hi there, I'm I'm Hugo. Um, My question's really about value, but it's about value if it's okay in the the public sector. Um, So it seems that with new labor and with sort of the big society values become so much about its social and economic uh, sort of impact. I'm just wondering has culture become this kind of byproduct for social engineering now?
8: Hi, um, my name is Beatriz. I'm from Mexico. <laughs> As an international creative um, that moved to London to be part of the mecca of the art and like where everything is being made, um, my question is, because London is such an expensive city to live in, or the UK in general, how does philanthropy um, improve? What is its view on international residencies abroad? Um, do you guys push as that as a solution of artists being able to live abroad for a certain time um, and then coming back to London to to show their art um, work and share that experience of being abroad as well? Would that be my question? Is is that a solution mm. to? London being such an expensive city and if they move abroad will be able to work in maybe better conditions, studios, more people, more different experiences. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Okay, so uh, Vasiliki has the internet changed philanthropy? Hugo, uh, uh, more questions on value. Um, I think your question was about uh, has art become instrumentalized? as a kind of social and economic tool. Um, And then Beatrice, um, is one of the solutions to London being so expensive (coughs) to set up international residencies so artists can go abroad and come back? Yeah? Anyone want to start with any of those? I'll start
2: with the first one, (laughs) Um, which is a really interesting question um, about how the internet will change, I mean, really uh, change philanthropy through crowdfunding. and I think there's a lot of hope invested in that area at the moment. And actually, the art fund, which you mentioned, I'm you know, a, a trustee of, has recently um, set up a scheme to incentivize crowdfunding. And I think the interesting thing about it is, a, is about it um, potentially just developing this habit of giving. You know, so you, know, you start off with, you say, people giving 10 pounds. Towards, towards something, and there are, there are problems with crowdfunding. I mean, the first is the most successful crowdfunding initiatives are often towards projects which don't necessarily really need the crowdfunding. You, you mentioned mm-hmm. sort of I Way Way, in the crowdfunding yeah. thing at the Royal Academy, yeah. <laughs> so it's actually a way of actually just maximising a bit of a bit of fundraising. And and you know, crowdfunding is at the moment is is um, I think often underpinned by people who already know and are around will support that particular artist and their project anyway but you know I think we, we, we've, we've got to invest some optimism in and, and, and see how it can be developed and possibly incentivized as, as the art fund is doing so um, uh, I don't know it's changed philanthropy much or changed giving much so far but you know it does seem probable it will become part of the changing picture of philanthropy to come lower level philanthropy, I think, rather than um, high-end, um, you know, mega-wealthy individuals who probably aren't going to sign up that way.
3: Um, no, I,
2: I mean as much as
3: I'm sure it is the future. I, I, I'm aware we haven't really tackled the question, what is the future of visual arts philanthropy in the UK? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure <coughs> that can be very easily... Oh, we got round to it somehow, we skirted the issues, sort of. but yeah, undoubtedly, <laughs> it's this interesting relationship between the, the notion of the individual and the notion of the collective, I mean, what is crowdfunding, it's a load <coughs> of individuals sticking their fingers on, on pay buttons, I, I, it's this sort of, I, I, I haven't really got to the... Under- it's the subscription,
2: course. public subscription, yeah, it used to be, in the 19th century model. Yeah.
1: Mm, mm, That's why mm, the fourth plinth was mm, empty mm. for 150 years, because there wasn't enough money raised from public subscription.
6: And it's also out of after-tax income, by the way, where yeah. philanthropy, if it's tax-based, is actually, you know, we're transferring the democratic mandate of tax revenue and giving it to rich people effectively. So there's a bit of a touchy issue with the democratic point of view there, because the philanthropy in that case is public
3: expenditure by a different name, where there's too much of a tax break. I mean, that's the essence of the American model. It's really a complete transfer of only people, people, but the major corporations to these kind of foundations. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I mean, mean I, in the interest
2: I, of the. I, sorry, I, sorry no, you know, you go ahead.
3: No, I just sort of troubling about the value of art now and what's happened to that, and the interest of the minority who can afford the kind of art that is wanted by museums. Which, again, the museums are only going to be able to get by giving tax breaks enough to the rich to give their work back. You know, the their, the artwork back to the museum. So it is. You know the amazing thing about art is the way that it is both. Ref- it has such a symbiotic relation with culture in, in the broadest sort of uh, anthropological sense. It is, uh, it is a reflection of of, of the social in every in, in in so many different ways, and it responds to the social. Uh, hopefully, at times it inspires the social, but it, it, it nevertheless is a reflection. So we kind of get what we pay for, um, I, I, to some extent. And at the moment, we've got a society with a, a lot of well, an extraordinary number of very wealthy people compared to how it used to be, I mean, if anybody hasn't noticed. And that's, um, you know, that, obviously the government just see that that's the way to fund art now, which is, in a way, a foregone conclusion, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I was reading that today there's 117 billionaires in the UK, and in 1989 there was nine. So you're right. Um, It's 8 o'clock. We've finished. Um, I think. We've got to finish now, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I think that's it. So... um, Can I just say finally, thank you uh, for hosting us here. Um, Thank you all for being so attentive and for coming up with such great questions. And um, thank you to our panellists for their generosity and uh, sharing their insights and experience with us. So thank you all.